Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Modern Mind with today's guest, Ollie France, who is about to embark upon one of the most mind-bending adventures I believe the world has ever seen, The Ultimate Seven, which involves travelling from the lowest point to the highest point in all seven continents. I can't even begin to imagine what that will entail, but Ollie shed some light on exactly what that's going to look like today, along with everything that's gotten to this point as a professional adventurer. So, He's about to take on one of the world's most incredible firsts, but that has been earned through years and years of building experience as a leader, refining his resilience, and working through some pretty unfathomable situations. He has been detained at borders on expeditions and adventures in the past, several borders, in fact, and we hear a few specific examples today which are incomprehensible in many ways, because the geopolitical situation that goes with adventure and travel and crossing border lines and covering big distances is not something that we often maybe consider as much as is worth considering. So be prepared to better understand the world of adventure and everything that has led up to the point that has made Ollie the man he is today about to embark upon something pretty remarkable. Before we dive into all that, it is important to ask a couple of small things from you. If you would be so kind as to rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on, make sure that you hit follow or subscribe, check us out on YouTube and sign up to the mailing list via the show notes down below and share this episode or an episode previously with a friend as it is the most effective way for the show to continue to grow as well as these minor requests that I would be oh so grateful for you to complete with haste, it is important to mention the show's sponsors, as without them, there would be no show. First up, we have Vivo Barefoot, who could well be the hack that you didn't know you needed. A study out of Liverpool University in 2021 has shown that by wearing a pair of Vivos for just six months can improve your foot strength by up to 60%. And for those of you listening that are into your health and fitness, I must ask the question as to why you would turn down such an opportunity. But how does this translate to the real world, you ask? Well, speaking from experience, I've been wearing Vivos for over four years now, and I love them. I'm in them 99% of the time, day to day. I'm walking in them, I'm in the gym in them, I'm trail running in them. I wear conventional running trainers for longer distance running, and I've got some sort of smarter dress shoes or dress sneakers that I wear for special, more formal occasions. But 99% of the time, I am in Vivos, and I could not go back, to be honest. My feet are stronger, my ankles are more reinforced, I have better proprioception from the ground upwards, I have very little interference between the ground and my movement patterns in the gym, and that has made me stronger overall. So if you would like to reap the rewards and feel the benefits for yourself, I recommend that you get a pair of Vivos for a day-to-day activity, whether it's walking the dog, commuting to work, give them a go, and if you love them as much as I do, you may well end up with a arsenal of footwear like I do. If you don't love them, then, well, now you know. And if you would like to give them a go, then use the code FergusVivo to save yourself 10% off at checkout and let me know how you get on over social media. Next up, we have Mancave, who are, without a doubt, the UK's most exciting men's grooming business. Based out of the Peak District and sold nationwide, they are 100% recyclable, 100% cruelty-free, and 100% natural, which means that you can have confidence in the quality of the product that you are using to look great, smell great, and feel great, which is the most important thing at the end of the day, is it not? They have everything from weird and wonderful smelling shower gels to hair product to black spice body scrub to beard oil and everything in between. And would love it if you guys gave their products a go if you haven't yet done so, as I've been using them for over a year now and really do swear by them. They are much better than a lot of off-the-shelf supermarket brands. And men, if you're listening using a three-in-one shampoo, body wash, conditioner thing, then it's time to step up your game because we're not teenagers anymore and you deserve better. 
So, if you're looking to capitalise on how much you deserve better, then use the code FC40 at checkout to save yourself 40% off, and please let me know how you get on over social media. So, with that in mind, let's dive into today's episode with Mr. Ollie France. Ollie, how are things? Fergus, really good, thank you. Yeah, pleasure to join you. Pleasure to have you. I think the first question whenever I speak to somebody like yourself is what drew you to such big, hairy, scary adventures? Hmm. Yeah, it's always hard to it's always hard to pinpoint these things and you know, often it's not one catalyst. But, you know, I think I think back to a young age and I always tended to be the one, although I never knew adventure could be a career, never knew it's what I would do, but I always tended to be the one who was kind of dragging people along on these silly schemes, whatever it might have been. And so I think there was an element there that I enjoyed taking risks from a young age. You know, I was the one climbing trees and and falling out of them. And I was the one coming up with these silly schemes. And I think as I got a little older, that just manifested itself in this need to just push things to the next level, um, really experiment with what I'm comfortable with. And, and for me, that was heading out into the big wide world on, on expeditions and adventures. So growing up, were you often finding yourself in sticky situations outdoors? Were you sneaking out to go and get up some hills? Were your parents encouraging of all sports that you 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 attempted what was what was childhood like for you that sort of really cultivated this because we all have big dreams when we're younger mm. don't we we all sort of see these mountains these hills these these otherworldly parts of side of the world that we've never even known to exist mm. yet so few of us actually then go on to make that something that we achieve within our lifetime but you've done that and and more so what was it about your childhood that gave you the confidence ultimately to move into this as a career well, it's interesting. I mean, the place I grew up in in Wigan, in uh, you know, it's a it's a working class rugby league town in Northern England, and actually, you know, it couldn't be further from uh, being an adventurous place of any kind. Um, but I think uh, pie pie bombs and pee wet is pretty uh, pretty adventurous <laughs> in my book. Quality nutrition right there, isn't it? Um, yeah. But you know, it's funny. So I, I grew up playing rugby league and football, and just absolutely loved that. But I was spending as much time as I possibly could out with my mates, out on, you know, the local fields, local football pitches, local forests. And, you know, I remember I remember one particular moment in, in the summer and it, is, it almost feels like one of these little whimsical outdoors novels you might read these days about, you know, we were out there in the woods trying to build this shelter and I'd sort of snuck a load of tools out of the garage, including axes and saws and things. You know, we must have been 13, 14 at the time. We were going to build this big shelter, which was kind of where we were going to hang out for the summer. And, you know, one hour into this tree building effort, I managed to slice my leg open with an axe and <laughs> ended up in A&E. And it took me about five years to tell my parents the truth about that one. But, yeah, it, it was it was little misadventures like that, um, being outdoors as much as possible. And actually spent a lot of my childhood kind of staring at this map on my wall, growing up in this fairly ordinary town, but actually wanting to get out into the big wide world as soon as I possibly could. So how did that manifest? What what actually drove you? What was the process to expedition number one? Yeah, so I, I as I said, um, you know, 
played football and rugby league at, at school, never considered this. But at the age of 16, 17, I went on this outward bound weekend for the first time. We went rock climbing, never done it before. I was up in the Lake District and just instantly loved the sense of adrenaline, the sense of being out there. And actually off, off this single experience, decided to sign up to an outdoor leadership degree, which is, yeah, believe it or not, an actual degree. And um, actually that turned out to be an amazing decision. And for the next three years, I, I spent you know, my time with people who were like-minded, with amazing instructors. We learned about all things, mountain biking, rock climbing, kayaking, canoeing, and they really encouraged us to travel as much as we could. And so the first solo trip for me was at the age of 19, went out to Morocco for a couple of weeks on my own, uh, big solo. Well, I was meet, I was working with or sort of trekking with local people, so it wasn't entirely solo. Um, but out there in the Atlas Mountains, and at that point in time, the Atlas Mountains, they were very, very underdeveloped. So we were going through villages with with no, uh, you know, no real infrastructure. I'd learned a little bit of Arabic, spent some of my uni years learning Arabic. And and so there I was, you know, out gazing, gazing up at the stars, trekking through mountains, living in mud huts for two weeks and completely cut off from the outside world. And I just got back from this experience and just thought, yeah, this is there's something magical about this experience. I want more of that. What what at its core w was it scratching for you? Was it just an overwhelming sense of fulfillment? Was it the awe that came with such wild and incredible environments that were very different to growing up in Wigan? Mm. I can imagine growing up in anywhere in the UK, in fact. Yeah. But if you were to really dilute down what it is that draws you to these environments could could you could you put a finger on it you know something just occurred to me as you were asking that question which i'd never really considered before but all throughout my childhood i never really enjoyed being told no you know i didn't like having restrictions imposed on me and so there was something just incredibly liberating inc incredibly freeing particularly about the mountain environment you know it's just so vast so expansive you know, nobody's going to tell me no if I go and climb up a rock face. Nobody's going to tell me no. You know, it, it's sort of on me. And there's um, there's also that comes with, I suppose that comes with, limit, you know, limitations in a way. You are responsible for yourself. And if you get yourself in bad situations, then you've got to get yourself back out of it. So, you know, freedom in a sense is, is a two-way street. But it was really that that sense of freedom which I enjoyed. And and actually, the, the solo travel, I think that was a special component in it, in that I've traveled lots with, with teams, and I guide teams, and, and travel with friends, and, and all kinds of different combinations. But when you are out there on your own, having that self-reliance, and just being open to the opportunities that the world presents with you, I think that that is a really magical part of solo travel in particular. And I'm glad that I did that in my early years, um, because it just really helped to develop me as a person, I think, and, and set me up for, for what I've then done later life. So you had that, you had that taste for blood from your first expedition and what happened next? Because, because so much has happened next and so much is about to mm. happen. But one of the things that I think in terms of, of sort of treading the, the path least trodden is climbing the highest peak in Iraq mm. in 2018, which is not something that you conventionally hear people talking about as much. It's obviously not as popular as climbing the highest peak in Africa, let's say, as that is a, mm -hmm. a path quite well trodden at this point, yeah. but, and you're going there very soon, but 
what was it about that expedition that that you focused on what were the lessons you learned along the way that has essentially given you the expertise that you now have good question i mean so that was that was a few years into into the the career as it were but climbing the Harris mountain in iraq was yeah that that was kind of a, a big a big one in in many respects it was a bold idea and you know to add a bit of context here at the time i was i was doing a lot of work guiding people through the likes of syria somalia yemen congo um really kind of testing the limits of of what is possible where it's possible to to travel to and working with with people from all kinds of really interesting backgrounds and and i got together with with a couple of colleagues at the time and we wanted to set up something really really bold and i had this brainwave well i was i knew i was going to iraq and so you know just doing a bit of research heard about the highest mountain in the country and thought you know what that sounds like a proper adventure and it is it's located up on the iranian border very sensitive part of the country the the mountain itself is surrounded by landmines which which were left in the 80s by saddam hussein it is very hard to get to you need to go through a lot of checkpoints to get there and you know as far as my research told me only a tiny number of outsiders had, had actually ever been to this mountain and it is, you know, it's a 3,600 meter mountain. We wanted to climb it in winter. It is full winter conditions, sort of think brutal Scottish winter conditions. Um, so it was really pushing the limits. And then, you know, you factor in actually taking a group out there, making sure they're safe, thinking about all the safety considerations. The margins are pretty thin. So when I did that, and, you know, I, had, I did have quite a bit of experience at this point, I knew that, I could not take any chances when it came to the level of risk. So I went out there on my own 2018, um, found myself local, good, really solid local contact, turned out to be probably the most experienced mountain guide in Iraq. Linked up with him, stayed in his house. We spent a few days on the mountain, wrecked the route, dodged the minefields, made it to the summit. Happy days. Um, and, and, you know, then it was a case of actually rolling it out and and putting it putting it to the general public and seeing if we could put a small expedition together you know did people have the appetite for for something like this that was really at the limits of of what is what is uh sort of available on the market in terms of adventurous experiences and believe it or not we got a, we got a small team together a small team of international trekkers and flew out there the following year to go and climb the mountain and you know, it turned out to be a really, yeah, really interesting process. And, and certainly from a, a leadership point of view, probably, you know, one of the most interesting moments that, that I've experienced um, when it comes to decision making in particular. And we were on this mountain and I knew the mountain well, you know, I'd, I'd studied it, learned everything I knew about the mountain. I wrecked it the year before, knew the routes, knew the dangers, and, you know, so there we are three days into the, uh, sorry, four days into the trek. Um, we've been camping our way up the mountain, hauling all of our supplies. I mean, there's no porters, no assistants whatsoever. So each person was carrying sort of 15, 20 kilo packs. We had our local guide. I was doing the navigating. Um, and then we were, we were parked at, at the final camp before the summit. And, you know, I, I talk about this because 
I think this is an important story to share. And I knew that the last ascent up to the summit was 500 meter snow slope, essentially surrounded by cliffs on either side. And it is perfect avalanche terrain. It's about 35 degrees. It is sort of a, a, a yeah, just, just um, perfect avalanche terrain in, in every way. And so for you to climb that mountain or that section of the slope and get to the summit, the snow conditions needed to be absolutely perfect. And what I'd observed in the days building up to it, of course, there's no weather forecast, there's no avalanche forecast out there. So I was figuring it all out myself. I, I was digging snow pits in the, in the snow, really trying to understand the snow conditions, explaining it to the team as I went along. And what I found essentially was, was really worrying. And it was what we had on the surface was what we call rock solid wind slab. So it's windblown snow, it's rock hard. And underneath that, sort of a thin layer of, of what they call grouple, which is almost like tiny ball bearings. And so essentially you've got, it's like having granite on top of ball bearings. And if you break that granite at a steep angle, you know, you can imagine the consequences. It would be thousands of tons of snow sliding down the mountain. So, um, you know, I, I just remember this distinct moment when I was, I was lying in my sleeping bag, um, you know, 3000 meters, halfway up the highest mountain in Iraq, I've got a team full of people who've flown here from around the world with this great expectation of reaching the mountaintop. And, you know, for one of the few times in my life, it really felt like I had the lives of those people resting on my shoulders. And, you know, th this is the severity of, of some of these expeditions, and particularly in a leadership capacity, people are entrusting their lives in you. And so, you know, I had to make a decision that next morning and, and we set off to go and, to go and uh, have a look, as, as I like to say. And we got, we got to the base of this steep snow slope, dug more avalanche pits. It looked as terrible as ever. And actually, I turned the group around and, and you know, we, we decided not to go for it. I decided that we shouldn't go for it. And so, yeah, that, that, was, that was an interesting process to go through. And I look back at that decision. It's a decision I've thought about a lot. I've talked about, you know, talked about it a lot to other mountain guides. And, you know, I do believe it is it's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, you know, in a place like that, you simply cannot afford to um yeah you can't afford to take take huge risks with uh, when, when the safety margins are so low, uh, slim the the you know the possibilities of rescue are so slim uh, you really are out there on your own and so i i did learn a lesson from that and you know i think the lesson i learned is from from a leadership point of view is actually explaining to people as i was going along bringing them inside of my decision making process that was really powerful. So that by the time I made the decision, they knew what that decision was going to be. And by really tapping into um, the team and you know, sort of using them throughout that process of, of climbing the mountain, um, when I did make that decision and we, we came back down the mountain, though there was that disappointment, you know, each one of those people made a, made a commitment and a decision to, to come back and do more expeditions with me in the future. At what point did you classify yourself as a leader because obviously you can receive mountain leader qualifications you can tick the box but being confident in leading a team and backing your ability and not allowing the voices of your left and your right to 
penetrate your steadfast decision making. At what point in your career did you decide in your own mind that you were the leader that you believed yourself to be? Because in such high pressure situations, you, you need you need to be that person. You, you, you need to have total unfaltering faith in your decision making. And that is something that is a skill, that is an experience that will be developed. And as you've said, it can only come from a place of authenticity and exposure to the demands of those high pressure situations. So in the years that, that came between your degree and that expedition, what was it that made you a leader in its truest sense? Yeah, so when it comes to, you know, what had really readied me for that decision-making process, I, I've got to rewind a little bit. And 20, 2012, finished uni, finished outdoor leadership degree, uh, went out traveling for a year, got back home. And by this point, you know, I'd spent a lot of my years, you know, I'd, I'd spent a month in Beirut, in Lebanon. I, I'd spent a month in Uganda. I've worked in Australia, America. I'd really been, been here, there, and everywhere. And, and kind of, pushing things bit by bit um, in each time. Um, but I arrived back home in 20, 2013 and just fell into this job actually, working as a kitchen salesman, um, you know, first in design, then then in kitchen sales. And I've got to say, like, I just absolutely hated that job. Um, it was one of those, you know, I got back, I checked the bank balance and decided to get this, this job. You know, it had the company car, it had the laptop, phone, all these other perks. But it was just completely unfilling, unfulfilling to me, and and you know I was there for quite a while actually, and you know, although I didn't have very much success, I decided to to quit that job in 2015, and really get back to what I wanted to do, and and, and that of course was embarking in this in this world of adventure, and so 2015 quit the job, absolutely terrible timing. We would we were due to get married to our wife in a few months. Um, we just bought a house. We were undergoing a major house renovation. And of course, you know, from that moment forward, I would have no income whatsoever. And, you know, I decided to quit this job and become an adventurer. Uh, and, you know, being an adventurer is sometimes just a, a fancy way of saying that you're unemployed. But anyway, quit the job. And my goal back then was to do something really big. I thought if I want to kickstart this, this line of work, I really need to go big. And so I decided my plan was to travel from Hong Kong to Istanbul, right across the mountainous spine of Asia, climbing mountains in every country uh, in the middle of winter on my own. And, and that's what I set out to do in early 2016. And, you know, I, I pulled out all the stops to, to make this happen in terms of trying to get funding on board, trying to get free kit, trying to, you know, run a Kickstarter, um, partnering with, with various local media stations, things like that. And eventually got to the start line of this of this journey, and and that really became yeah the most transformative experience of my life to date, um, and it turned into this four month just epic journey um, through eleven countries, climbed fourteen mountains, had all kinds of crazy harrowing experiences along the way, um, you know some of which I can share if, if you like. What sticks out the most? What was the uh, what what was the the memory that is most front of mind when you reflect on that four month period? You know, I, I want to give a dose a dose of the good. There were great things that happened. Um, you know, I had celebrated 
various New Year's festivals, went to a big Tibetan festival, um, made loads and loads of friends, just had lots of good times, reached lots of summits um, in difficult con- situations. But, you know, really the, the, the one story that I always come back to and, and that is front and center of my mind in that experience is being detained in Uzbekistan as, um, yeah, as a suspected drug trafficker. Uh, and 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 that was yeah that was an interesting challenge to say the least so you know to to give a bit of a little bit of context on that one so uzbekistan at that time very very strict authoritarian regime known as the you know second most restrictive country behind north korea in terms of the freedoms of it, of its people police state and i've been warned tra- uh, you know traveling through central asia the kyrgyzstan and tajikistan i've been warned by people just be careful in uzbekistan and as i went across the border late at night from tajikistan um yeah that that's where everything changed at this point i was 2 months deep uh, into the exp- well, two and a half months deep i'd already had lots of other crazy crazy incidents i've been interrogated numerous times in china uh, almost hit by an avalanche in kazakhstan uh, stuck in the landmine jungle in Laos. And so, you know, I thought, well, nothing can stop me now, surely. Uh, but yeah, I went, went to cross into Uzbekistan. And immediately as I crossed the border, my bag was taken from me. Every item was taken out, full bag search. They wanted my phone, laptop, camera, searched through all the files, documents I had, uh, full body search. By the end of this, they found in my first aid kit some cocodamol tablets, which uh, I was taking for a knee problem at the time. Uh, unbeknown to me, they're classified as an illegal narcotic in Uzbekistan and many other countries, it turns out, because uh, it contains uh, opium derived from heroin, just north of Afghanistan, which produces 95% of the world's heroin. So this is like drug central. Um, yeah, it turns out the majority of drugs trafficking heads up through Central Asia into Russia, and uh, out across the world. So they are very, very hot on it. And as soon as they found that, yeah, I was effectively collared and, and yeah, <laughs> told that I was a I was a drug trafficker, uh, hauled away for a four-hour interrogation, which it went on till midnight. And, yeah, at the end of this, you know, I'd been photographed, very sort of brutally interrogated, and then I was presented with these papers all written in Russian, and I looked at these things, having no idea what they said. They barely spoke English. I knew a tiny few words in Russian. And they said, look, we want you to sign these papers and it'll be a lot better for you. And I'm looking at these things just thinking, there's no way I'm going to sign these papers. Um, what I want to do, uh, and this was, you know, step one of trying to gain control over this con- crazy situation, is um, I want to speak to the embassy. I want to speak to the British embassy, get some assistance here. I knew that I had a, a right to, to speak to the embassy. So I spent the night there at the, at the border post. Next morning, they said, okay, here's the phone. You've got three minutes, one phone call, go ahead. Uh, so I phoned, phoned the British embassy. This was late March, 2016. And as they, as I, as the phone was picked up, I just received this message saying, hello, it's Good Friday. The British embassy will be closed until next Tuesday. Goodbye. And so there I was just completely back to square one. No phone signal, you know, no Wi-Fi, no way of contacting the outside world effectively. Um, and so I was completely on my own in that, in that situation. And, you know, these thoughts are going through my head of just being, yeah, spending, spending a long time in some rotten Uzbek jail. Um, 
and um yeah i mean what 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 happened next was they took me down to termez which is a city on the afghan border they took blood samples uh, urine samples seeing if i still had this drug in my system they gave me a lawyer an interpreter and ultimately the the um the options were my my palette of options were 30 days in jail or a $500 fine. Well, in fact, they said $1,000. I negotiated that down. And, um, you know, for anyone wondering, is is this just a backhander? Um, no, the, the chance of a backhander had long since gone. And I'd sort of subtly explored that option at the border. And it was, uh, yeah, it was not it was not taken advantage of by them. So this was like, you know, through the courts. And so yeah, the, the the issue I had actually, I couldn't get my hands on the five hundred dollars. I had a few, you know, some dollars in cash, but they didn't accept Visa or Mastercard in Uzbekistan, so it meant a, an awkward phone call back home. Uh, they let me use the phone one more time. My dad transferred Western Union transferred some cash. It took me a few days to get it. Um, meanwhile, I'm being held under house arrest in this grimy hotel. I've got yeah, very sus- suspicious, shifty characters coming in in plain clothes who are asking all kinds of questions being generally very hostile and ultimately I got my hands on this cash and we transferred it into Uzbek money and the funny thing is like in Uzbekistan the the currency the the smallest the biggest denomination is is worth about 20p so $500 worth is literally a bag full of cash so I was then driven with literally a carrier bag full of cash out to what turned out to be an ex-KGB compound on the outskirts of the city, on the Afghan border. And it was just this mad situation. And they sent me in there and, you know, it, it took them took them ages to count all this money. Uh, very, very, everyone's very, very serious. You know, it's no fun and games in there for sure. And got out, got out of there eventually, was given my passport back. And the guy said to me, okay, yeah, you, you can leave the country, you can leave Uzbekistan and go back home. I'm, you know, this is the first he'd mentioned of that. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I've been traveling two and a half months. I've got through all these hardships. I do not intend to go home. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm only halfway through. Um, you know, there's no way I'm going home right now. Um, and so, yeah, I decided to take a risk at that point. And I've made friends with the interpreter. That was, you know, he was the one person I kind of latched onto as a possible ally in the situation, having no, yeah, no contact with the outside world. And so I got in the taxi with him. He was meant to take me to the airport. He was under strict orders, but I had a quiet word with him and said, look, I don't want to go to the airport. I want to go to the mountains. I want to go and climb a mountain in Uzbekistan and then carry on my my journey. You know, I told him all about it and he decided to help me out. So yeah, was uh, in a taxi off up into the mountains. And I thought, right, okay, priority number one, I need to tell my family that I'm not banged up in some Uzbek jail here. Um, so I searched around the town looking for phone signal, looking for Wi-Fi. Yeah, nothing of the kind. Uh, bumped into this tough group of local boxers, black eyes, gold teeth. And they said to me, look, you know, there's, they spoke a bit of English. They said, there's no phone signal. There's no contact with the outside world, but we'll look after you. And I thought, well, you know, they look like trustworthy guys. So <laughs> I'll go along with them. But it turned out to be really, I mean, quite interesting because they, they, they owned a bar in the city, in the village. Uh, took me took me for a few beers. We went for a drive around the, the, the village and up to a viewpoint. And, but 
a, a couple of instances in that night, I noticed, well, in fact, <laughs> I was approached by uh, police officers on two occasions and actually pulled out the bar. And later at the viewpoint, police officer came, you know, thorough questioning, papers taken, all the rest of it. Um, next day, went and climbed a mountain, came back down uh, late at night, been a long, like 14 hours on the mountain. And, and as I got back to my, where I was staying, this little hotel, approached and there the police officer was spying through my bedroom window and i thought okay you know i'm being watched here um they're you know they're fully just onto me and so i thought right, i need to get the hell out of this place um and yeah I, i'd never before experienced anything like that where just this deep sense of paranoia was just swimming through my system the reality of that situation is totally unfathomable to people that haven't experienced or seen that reality exist. I can imagine because hearing you talk about such an authoritarian regime doesn't seem real in many ways. And going from selling kitchens to being interrogated by Uzbek mm. police and detained for a period of time, the, the you've got to laugh at the Good Friday situation. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can upon reflection, but at the time, you must have been cursing the universe and everything within it. But you didn't have any choice but to learn mm. there, did you? Because you were completely powerless to the situation. Did you feel the panic subside and a desire for practicality and sort of pragmati pragmatism set in? Or... Did you feel well equipped to handle the pressure of the situation, knowing the risks, having mapped out the expedition? Because you can plan and plan and plan on paper, but you can only gain experience in things like this once you're in the arena, as it were. And you can't be in the arena of negotiating with people that don't speak in the language at a border station in an authoritarian regime with a KGB compound not far away. That's not a situation you learn at primary school. So... From a personal point of view, from a character point of view, from a leadership point of view, from a personal faith in your ability to navigate the situation and actually have faith that the situation would come to an end and you'd come out the other side, how did that arc evolve for you personally? You know, I think I think having those earlier experiences of, of travel through, yeah, through, through more hostile parts of the world and... You know, I, I I think back to you know back to the age of twenty, and I think when I was in Uzbekistan, I was about twenty five. So that was five years on, and I, at the age of twenty, I was out in in Beirut, living with a local family. You know, there were there were explosions going off a mile away. Um, you know, bumped into guys with handguns on the street. Um, <laughs> you know, I was watching a guy out my window with, with a rifle, uh, and so. That that was there were lots of experiences which I think had kind of readied me for that that situation, and then you know even on that that Asia trip being interrogated in China, um, having a lot of yeah a lot of hard questions thrown at me, and, and just navigating very yeah very hard to reach corners of the world on my own day to day. You know, it, it's like a multitude of communications that you're having every single day just to keep on moving forward because, you know, very often nothing is easy. 
you know, even just simple thing of getting from A to B, you know, you want to get from A to B in, in Kyrgyzstan, you got to have like a negotiation with 30 men who are all trying to like pull your arm off because that that's the negotiation tactic. You know, they, they grip hold of your hand and and you you keep a fierce grip on each other's hand until the price is settled. Meanwhile, you've got a mob of 20 guys watching the whole thing going on. So, you know, there's all these little things that are going on. And I think, you know, a big part of it, when you are solo and you're coming across some hostility like that, and, and I don't want to make out that it's all like that. 99% of my experiences were great. Um, but when you do encounter those those negative situations, you're on your own. There is literally, or there was for me, and perhaps that's because of my previous experiences, this instinct to just right if nobody's nobody else is gonna stand up for me i need to stand up for myself and i need to fight just as hard as they are uh for myself and, and that was the instinct because there is nobody to turn to there's nobody to call only one person can get you out of that situation and it's yourself and and so you, you've kind of just got to take responsibility you know i'd 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 made error, you know, made error in my planning. I hadn't realized that Cocodamol was illegal there. And you know, you think about it, it's probably milligrams of of heroin which have stumped me and, and caused this entire situation. And um so I, I, yeah, and to come back to your, your other point that you mentioned there, uh there was certainly an element of me when I was deep into it, there was certainly an element and, and I was just kind of going with um, you know, going through this process as much as I t could, trying to grab elements of control where I could. Um, but there was definitely a, a thought going through my head, which was, damn, this is going to make a good story when it's over. <laughs> if you're someone that's looking to get the best out of yourself on a day-to-day -day basis, then reducing your alcohol intake might be something that's worth considering. And that is where Days Brewing come in. With an enormously refreshing and enormously alcohol-free lager and pale ale, Days provide me with the solution to replace midweek beers with non-alcoholic ones, which has skyrocketed my productivity, cognitive ability, sleep quality, performance, recovery, all these things that are important to me on a day-to-day -day basis. That's not to say that I'm not having a few alcoholic drinks at the weekend, or once a quarter I will get it very, very wrong with some friends and then regret it for about three months before we go again. But during the weekdays, have been providing me with the perfect solution to have all the ceremony of a beer without any of the negative effects. Brewed just down the road from me in East Lothian and sold nationwide. If you'd like to grab yourself some days, then please do head to their website and use the code MODERNMIND20 at checkout to save yourself 20% off and let me and them know how you get on over social media as we would love to hear from you. So coming out of the back end of that, you had about, what, 3,000 miles or so to go yeah. on an 8,000-mile journey. Did you have a spring in your step, feeling that you'd overcome the biggest obstacle, or was there a palpable fear lingering that, oh, my goodness, I maybe underestimated the severity of this quote-unquote adventure? Because it wasn't long ago that you were selling mm. kitchens on the road, and I keep coming back to that because you went big on round one. Yeah. But... The experience of building the wings as you fly is a very valuable one, but this was this was building the wings as you fly on a five foot drop. You didn't have long to build them, no, <laughs> and the stakes were high. So, what was the what was the emotion? What was the the anticipation of the future for the remaining 
the remaining miles after that experience? Because it sounds like there's been a steady build of, right, okay, accounting for culture, accounting for tradition, accounting mm. for the difficulties of each individual state, but you then peaked. Yeah. Or was there a fear that you hadn't yet peaked and maybe, oh, I've underestimated the reality of the situation here? There was definitely a thought that anything could happen. Anything could happen. You know, every single day, anything could happen. And weird and wonderful things did happen every day. So, you know, I was under no illusions that the hardest bit was over. Uh, and actually, you know, as I just as I got out of that village, uh, you know, it ended up being this crazy sort of rat race across the country. I, I changed taxis, taxis in every town, traveled for 500 miles, sheltered in, in some, some locals' house, managed to get an overnight train into Kazakhstan. You know, it, that, that was a crazy experience in itself while just carrying this weight of paranoia uh, just to get the hell out of that country. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a good method. I think that journey turned into kind of a good metaphor for life, which is that when you, when you have a goal, and for me, I started off in Hong Kong. My goal was Istanbul. It was 8,000 miles away. And all of the possibilities between me and the end point were sort of infinite. Anything could happen. But the one thing I could control was my daily perpetual motion moving bit by bit further west until I reached my end point and, and just trying to evade and deal with the problems that come up. And, you know, you think about any goal in life, and it's so often a similar journey, isn't it? You know, you know what the destination is often. You, you've got this goal in mind. But really, we have very little control sometimes about what's going to happen between then and, and the end. And what counts, of course, is how you deal with it and, and how you get over those situations. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right that I, you know, I came into this as a failed kitchen salesman. But I think that, in a sense, was my biggest motivation who who the hell was going to hire me as a failed kitchen salesman? You know, um, nobody. So if I didn't make this thing a success, what prospects did I have? If I didn't make this thing a success, how was I going to build a career to to, fern, to fund this house renovation, to pay for this wedding, which I was building towards? Like everything depended on this expedition being a success so you know that's the context that might i've never felt such a deep sense of motivation and so that's why when this guy slapped the passport back in my hand in uzbekistan and said you can go home now i looked him in the eye and said there's no way i am going home um and and you know that was the depth of my motivation at that point in time and you, you were so deep as well, where your worldview and your perspective and the lens in which you were viewing the world had been altered in that two and a half months. Mm. If you'd been detained at the border, fresh out of a Sunday roast, mm. you would have taken the flight home. But because you've covered so much, because you've come so far, because you've seen the things that you've seen, because you've experienced the things that you have, your perspective on what was left on the table had changed. So there's a there's a cynic that would have said that the sunk cost fallacy could have applied here mm. because you've invested so much but uzbekistan sent you a clear signal that actually maybe the error in planning that's it mate you know what that's cost you you should probably get on a flight home but then there's the optimist or the or the irrational optimist will say that was you mm. who decided nah let's keep let's keep going and i completely understand from a person point of view why you did and i think something that we haven't focused on 
is the amount of beauty that you will have seen along the way because you've covered one of the least trodden parts of the world in terms of footfall mm. and you will have seen things that only a handful of people in the world will have seen so what was the most beautiful site that you saw where was it ah great question and and, and yeah like that was the overwhelming feeling from this this journey that it was a real privilege to just set eyes on places where very very few people are going um to to, to give you a picture of probably the most evocative powerful moment that I had on that on that journey that was in Tibet and it was it was towards the start of my journey I'd maybe been traveling about a month and I was desperate to get into Tibet I just you know, I knew about the culture there I I really wanted to see it for myself um but if you so again you know it's going to get slightly political in the sense that if you want to go to Tibet you need to get expensive permits from the Chinese state. It's very, very difficult. Um, you know, it can take months for these things to get protest. I'm on a budget. I'm on a time. I'm under time pressure. So I wanted to do it my way, and, and my way meant sneaking into Tibet. Uh, and you know, that that was my plan of uh, very, very safe and logical yeah, on the surface. Yeah, so obviously. It's, you yeah, know, it's yeah. clearly a, a very sensible decision, and. Um, so I, yeah, that was my plan. And, and I'd figured out that um, there was going to be this New Year's festival in a little village called Langmusi, 4,000 meters up high on the edge of the Tibetan plateau, spectacular looking valley. And I wanted to be there. I, I, I really wanted to be there. I thought my trip could coincide. And for two weeks, I was skirting the Tibetan border, trying to get access, trying to get access into Tibet and being turned away at every point. I was having police hassling me. So eventually I, I met a guy, you know, it's funny, I tend to meet into all these curious figures, but this was a guy who was writing for the Free Tibet Press and he was actually under watch by the Chinese state. So again, you know, thinking, okay, trustworthy guy. And he, he's got his passport taken off him, but he said, look, you know, I, I can help you. And he smuggled me onto this bus at the crack of dawn, blizzard of minus 20. And off I go on this bus, trundling up the mountainside, again, past police checkpoints to eventually reach this high Tibetan village. As I reach there, there are, there are hundreds of, of uh, Tibetans sort of in these great big cloaks. You've got these Tibetan longhorns just booming around the valley. You've got you know snowstorm coming down, people running up to the hilltops, throwing these things in the air. You've got people in masks dancing around this, this, um, these stupas. And it was just absolutely phenomenal you know it's, it's minus 20 it's, there's a blizzard going on i'm the only westerner there and yeah it was it was just such a powerful thing to behold and you know something you know it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it now but um yeah incredible experience and and one that you know what yeah i i, I sort of i took a few risks there to make that happen um, but you know, it's, it's so easy to, to just comply and, and just back down and, but sometimes you've got to be bold and I think being bold very often pays off. It does. It does. I, I, uh, I agree in many ways. I've never yet been so bold that it's completely destroyed me as I'm still here talking, which is obviously good news and you are in the same boat, yeah. but yeah, there are, there are situations you've been in that you will not meet somebody at the pub who will have the same stories to tell. And that is a fantastic reward for being bold. Mm. But it begs the question, because I get this a lot as well. Yeah. 
whether you were ever drawn to join the military and building a career in that background because there's obviously so much crossover with why lots of younger guys join the military that just cosmic draw to the outdoors the sort of lack of a desire to be told no or a disdain for authority figures but then conversely the military means you slot right into that but it almost simplifies your life whereby you know where the authority figures where the ranking is so it takes away any sort of confusion as to who's in charge of who sort of thing was it ever a part of your was it ever a part of your thinking was it ever a, a thought that came to mind was it something that came up again as you became more experienced in harsh environments or was it just something that you thought you know what I'd rather do this my own way yeah it's something that has kind of been been swimming around my mind for yeah for probably the best part of a decade up until a few years ago right from being at college going through uni at one point I went and I uh, was going to join the the university officers training corps um and and then even even a few years ago I was looking at possibly doing some re- reserve stuff alongside my expeditions um I think for me I'd I'd found this trajectory quite quite early in life and you know that that whole kitchen salesman period that was sort of a blip that was a bit of an anomaly there that certainly wasn't a part of the plan um so it, it was something I, I considered a lot. And actually, you know, I look at it now and I've got friends in the, who are serving and, ha- and have finished serving in the military. And I know that it would have suited me well. You could train all day. You get to hang out with like-minded people. Um, you know, you can do all kinds of courses. Of course, there's, there's the, the issue of being potentially shot, which is a bit less appealing, but <laughs> that, that, that that's true. Yeah, funny how things work out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I could have gone down that line, but you know, I, I chose my own way, and I, I think that's um, kind of what I've carried on doing. I think this is a trade, commercially speaking, is something that's probably fairly misunderstood. I think any solo outdoors focused disciplines are often very difficult to navigate commercially, whether that's ultra running, whether that's mountaineering, whether it's adventure in general terms short of being a TV adventurer, there isn't really an obvious way to make it a career. So for those that are interested, for those that are curious, myself included, how have you structured things from a business and commercial point of view to be able to make this a career? And how much of that was absorbed from what others were doing and learning from other people in the industry? And how much of it was made up as you go along and figured out as you've as you've gone through the iterations over the years? Yeah, great question. And, you know, it's true. It is such a niche thing to do that there is really no blueprint for it. So, you know, going into this, I remember searching around like, okay, how do I actually make this into a career? And there really weren't many answers. You could look at people who were who were really at the top of the game, um, you know, top level explorers uh, and see what they were doing. But of course, for a guy starting out with you know very little pedigree, very little background, um, I had to figure it all out for myself. And so, over the years, it's something I have you know I've dabbled in lots of things, tried lots of things. Some have worked, some haven't. But over time, the things that have worked best, I I do so. I do a lot of guiding work. I now run my own company called Wild Edge, where I guide people on expeditions, adventures all over the world. Um, for, for many years, I was doing a lot of freelance work, so 
guided literally hundreds of people through about 30 different countries all across Asia and Africa. So that that has been, you know, a source of income. I do a lot of, of talks to corporate groups and businesses, sharing my experiences um, across the UK in person, virtually. Um, and, you know, more latterly work with work with brands on, on consulting, uh, help out with photo shoots, guiding, that sort of thing. Uh, do a bit of modeling for, for outdoor brands. Uh, and, and just recently have, have partnered up with a couple of big outdoor brands. Um, but actually, one one other part of, of sort of my career, which, yeah, I, I, I've not spoken about a ton, was, uh, you know, the thing that got me through COVID, actually. So March 2020, just got back from Siberia. Great big trip out there. And, uh, you know, within two weeks, all of my work was cancelled. I had a year full of expeditions lined up, suddenly all cancelled. So it's like, okay, what do I do now? But a couple of years before that, I'd set up, I'd set up a, a, another little business, actually. And this was basically making and selling um, reclaimed wooden furniture. So... Yeah, getting reclaimed timber, turning it into tables, benches, shelves, that sort of thing. And, you know, it was just something to keep me ticking over a little bit in between the expeditions. Uh, March 2020, all expeditions cancelled. Within two weeks, that business just kind of exploded, um, more or less by chance. Suddenly, everybody sat at home. They're staring at the coffee tables or whatever and not spending money on travel or socializing. And so they're buying a lot of furniture. And actually in 2020, that business grew sevenfold. Um, you know, got, got, a, got a big workshop, hired, hired a quite, I probably hired about seven people overall. Um, and, and that just majorly got me through, yeah, got me through those couple of years and, and turned out to be, yeah, probably my, mo my most lucrative period in a sense. Fantastic. So the, the the short answer is chaos. Chaos commercially, but but the the, the long the longer and more nuanced answer, but which is almost very conventional in many ways, is you sort of do what needs done within the context of what's available to you to make the things work that you want to have happen. Yeah, it's not a case of you can stroll in and say, "I would like to be an adventurer." Here is my CV. Big four consultancy firm. Are you interested? No, I'm afraid not. There's not, there's not really a, an indeed job description for this, is there? No. So it's kind of you've got to make make do with what you've got, but you've got to be bullish. You've got to be bold, like you've said, to be able to get the attention from the people that haven't probably had that many propositions put their way because there isn't a really well-established commercial blueprint for how to approach these things. Mm -hmm. So it, it's reassuring to hear that it's chaos because if you come out and said I've, I've come up with this this clear formula and how I how I navigated being an adventurer from a commercial sense people would be like oh interesting whereas I think it's probably reassuring to people that are sort of exploring how they can make something of adve adventure exploration that chaos is normal yeah. embrace the chaos and then yeah, chaos in <laughs> use that to your advantage when you find yourself on the Uzbek border yeah but with that in mind you are preparing for your biggest project yet mm. and I would love to hear more about the thinking that has gone into that from a long-term fulfillment point of view, because it's a big one, and knowing the way that you approach things, there'll be a lot of thought gone into where this sits in your to-do list as an individual with the life that you have available to you. Mm -hmm. 
and I'd love to know how you've planned for it, what this entails, what you're worried about, and ultimately when it kicks off, which is very, very soon. So, um, yeah, you, you talked a bit about chaos there, and, and it, it's true that a lot of the early years have been very chaotic, and it is a case of doing what I possibly can. And in a sense, this next project is my way of bringing some degree of order to that chaos in that it is it will be my absolute focus for the coming years and you know I, I think whenever i've whenever i've sort of excelled at anything it is when i've given it my absolute focus and i think that's the case for a lot of us it's you know i, I heard this thing which is if you have 15 priorities you really don't have any and and so this is absolute priority number 1 and and um, the project is the Ultimate Seven project, and this is something which you know first came to my mind about ten years ago. Um, over the last few years, I've thought about it a lot, researched it, and to a point where I think it's possible. And it's a project which is it's a world first project. It's never been done before, never been attempted before. It is a multi year endeavor. And essentially the project is this, to travel by human power from the lowest point in each continent to the highest in all seven continents. So to give you a sense of what that would look like, it is seven separate expeditions on all seven continents, entirely by human power from the lowest point by elevation to the highest. So of course, finishing up with all seven summits. And um, yeah, to break each of those down, they are, yeah, it will involve around 500 days of expeditions in total across all different climates, deserts, jungles, mountains, seas. Um, it will involve thousands of miles of, of human-powered endeavor. And as I say, it's never been done before. So knowing what I know, having spent 15 years in this in this world of adventure, I really believe it is on the limits of what is possible physically and logistically those who I've spoken to you know agree <laughs> who are who are well placed to give judgment on this kind of challenge and so this is this feels like my piece de resistance it feels like it's what I've been building towards for my entire career um, and you know what another element of motivation here and I've always thrived on kind of pushing the limits of, of what, what's possible, of, of going outside of my comfort zone. And I remember one strange realization I had last year when I was in Syria. I was guiding a team through Syria. We were in Aleppo, a, a city which has been bombed, completely destroyed through the civil, uh, Syrian civil war. Nobody's been there for 10 years. Um, there are many dangers. And I remember sitting with, with the, the group I was guiding through there and just had had this thought, which is, this feels way too comfortable. <laughs> and it was a really strange realization to have in such a place, but it really did. And actually in the build up to that trip, I'd had a stressful time at home and I had so many plates spinning and you know was just frantically working towards lots of things. And it was, I felt so tranquil in, in this most, yeah, most sort of hostile, remote, chaotic place. And I thought, well, if if I if this doesn't feel hard enough or if this feels too comfortable, maybe I've been playing it safe. And so 
<laughs> you know, this ultimate seven, the ultimate seven project is me really ratcheting things up to Mac to the maximum. Um, and yeah, I'm very, very excited about the, the possibilities that I believe exist with this project. Um, which even before starting is, is slowly starting to show themselves. For context, for those listening, and for myself actually, because I don't know the lowest points of the seven continents, what are the seven A to Bs that you need to cover? So Africa, heading out there in two days for the first leg, that is Lac Asal in a little country called Djibouti, one of the hottest places on earth, it's going to be 45 to 50 degrees, uh, then a 1,600-mile cycle through Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kenya, into Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro. Um, Asia will be Dead Sea to Everest, Dead Sea being Jordan, Israel, all the way pretty much across Asia um, through some quite interesting countries, then to finish up with Everest. North America, Death Valley to Denali, Death Valley being Southern California, way up to Denali and Alaska, only ever been done once before. South America, lowest point is a little um, area on a on a little peninsula about 1,600 miles away from, from Aconcagua. Um, yeah, notorious for its brutal winds, harsh weather conditions. Asia, sorry, Europe is uh, politically interesting at the moment because the highest and lowest points is both in Russia. So the lowest point is Casp Caspian Sea. Yeah, so that, that makes things somewhat interesting. Um Right now, might might be one to to keep for later. Uh, yeah, lowest point is the Caspian Sea. Highest point is Elbrus. Uh, so a lot of people don't think as of uh, of as Russia as as Europe, but uh, half of it is, or about a third of it is. Um, so yeah, Mount Elbrus at about five thousand six hundred meters, and Antarctica. The highest point is Mount Vincent, and the lowest point has been quite hard to research actually because so much of Antarctica has not been mapped. So I yeah, I've got. I think I'm on the right track of, of where it is, but that one may require a bit more research and consultation. Um, Oceana, very interesting one, will be the lowest point is uh, Lake Eyre in South Australia, and the highest point is on West Papua, so an entirely different landmass. And so that is going to present some interesting challenges, uh, yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Those uh, those were much worse than I thought they'd be. Oh yeah, I don't know what I was expecting. They're pretty bad. The, 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 yeah, yeah, they're, they're pretty bad. <laughs> That's one way of saying it. But what an absolutely phenomenal way of interacting with all seven continents because you get the highs and lows. Mm. Ah, good one, mm -hmm. Fergus. Along with the enormous variation in climate that can come with a lot of these places, which is a very very unique experience. And again, you're not going to bump into anyone at the local that has the same stories to tell at the back end of this. Yeah. If it's not rude of me to ask, mm. how much is this going to cost? Several hundred thousand pounds. <laughs> I assumed as much. Yeah. I was wondering whether we were it, dipping it, into it, seven it, figures or not. Could could it, nudge it, it, towards it, seven figures quite easily. Yeah, 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 that's what I was expecting. Mm. Because are you documenting it in a in a high level way as well? What's the what's the sort of team dynamic and logistics to consider? So at at an absolute minimum, I will be documenting it. Although conversations are ongoing with, um, yeah, with, with a number of TV production companies, so yeah, that that's that's a possibility without talking too much on that. But um, yeah, absolute minimum, I will be documenting it as much as I possibly can. 
is is your is your brief just get what you can and we'll piece it together at the back end hypothetical that, that, tv company that we can't we can't refer to yeah that that's that's one that's one way we could do things yeah um that's one way we could do things so i mean what i would like to achieve is is to have you know film crew with me um because you know knowing what i know from my experiences so far expeditions journeys like this just present the most interesting unpredictable moments and you know it's with a crew that you can really capture that uh so that is the intention somewhere down the line and it's going to be you know it's going to be a building process i'm intentionally starting with the kind of cheaper easier expeditions building it up from there you know strategically um and then you know very very pleased to have a couple of big brands on board um lecole the you know cycling brand premium cycling brand british brand doing amazing things really high-end quality cycling gear support likes of bradley wiggins um victoria pendleton and then i've just today shared news that uh, canada goose are coming on board as the the mountain clothing sponsor who are yeah a, a truly massive global brand and and support some of the the absolute great explorers and adventurers so um yeah that there's l many many signs which are yeah sort of showing me the true scope and scale of this project i know that but to have brands like canada goose um put their faith in it you know that really backs it up uh, from my point of view no it, it's a phenomenal project it's it's terrifying i i um i yeah my, my brain goes oh can't be asked as soon as i even start thinking about thinking about the logistics so uh <laughs> my hat goes off to you before you even set foot on the plane for even considering to map this out and i'm sure the excel spreadsheet is horrifying yeah. but nonetheless there is a lot that is about to unfold mm. and i think the biggest question that will be on everyone's everyone's minds right now is is what are you most concerned about yeah good question i mean i i could nail it down to specific elements in each on each leg but really i will be taking every measure to to mitigate risk overall um you know to to put it in context this is not something i built towards randomly um and so you know probably the biggest risk overall is sometimes sometimes the people you interact with and sometimes the officials i've had more problems with officials overseas i mean i mentioned one there uzbekistan there's probably been 10 different countries i've been interrogated had phones taken even been questioned by mi5 arriving back in the uk um so that that's an element and being on the road spending time on the roads that is a big big risk i'll be taking steps to mitigate that um Cycling through Africa must be yeah. a terrifying thought, and that's next week. That's next week. So that must be pretty front of mind. That's certainly <laughs> certainly front of mind. Um, I'm lucky to have, well, I, I've worked hard to build some very good contacts out there who are going to be helping to make sure it's a smooth journey. But yeah, Africa is certainly not without its risks. I've spent a lot of time there. We've had some interesting situations in the past. But um, yeah, I feel as well positioned as ever to go and take on this challenge. Fantastic. Fantastic. I I'm very excited. Excited I I I, I paused on using the word excited because I don't feel it's doing doing it justice. I I'm if there was a blend of excited and curious and also kind of existentially 
fascinated by just the journey you're going to go on. You will you will see the world in a way that nobody has ever seen it before, and that's pretty remarkable. I mean, you haven't started yet, to be fair. So mm-hmm. my uh, my my excitement is, is is a bit premature, and you've got lots of time to document it and share these stories as we go. But I am, uh, yeah, I, I I'm sort of I'm sort of wandering in my own head at all of the things you're going to experience because it's not just like you're running from west coast to east coast of America where you experience the culture of America mm. in all of its different forms, all of its different states, and then you're done. It's you are in a multi-year period going to experience the worst of and the best of every continent on the planet and that is remarkably unique and going from the lowest point to the highest point gives it a total different narrative that just doing the seven summits doesn't which is obviously why you're drawn to this project and why you've spent so many years preparing for it but yeah for for me sitting here hearing you talk about it it's a yeah, I'm I'm being a terrible podcast host because my mind's just wandering, thinking, "Good lord, think of the things you're going to see, the people you're going to have to run away from, mm-hmm. and all the things that you're going to have to consider." But for those that are wanting to get more insight, because we could we could deep dive on context for hours and yeah. go through the things you're most concerned about in each of the seven continents, but we we, we won't do that this time round. We'll uh, maybe we can do a follow up conversation when you're a couple of couple of expeditions down. That could be an interesting way of debriefing things. To me. But for people that want to follow along, hear more about what you're up to, hear more about what you've been up to, what is the best place to direct them to? Yeah, thanks very much, Fergus. Um, so best place, it will be Instagram, at Ollie France. Come and find me on LinkedIn. Also, really want to do more YouTube stuff. So yeah, come and have a look on, on YouTube, at Ollie France. And I will be putting all things Ultimate 7 across all those channels. And um, please do come and follow along. I can assure you, it's going to be some adventure. And uh, appreciate the thoughts on it there, Fergus. As well, it's, it's good to hear somebody else's take on it. And a lot of what? No, it's just it's yeah, it's 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 otherworldly. Uh, but in this world, which is, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the concept of the seven summits. Personally, mm. I don't know whether I am fascinated enough by Everest to be willing to die on it. And that is essentially the question you need to ask yourself. Maybe I'll have a midlife crisis, and that answer will change. I don't know. Um, that's not me saying you have a midlife crisis, mm-hmm. by the way. To just to just to be clear, but I, I wrestle with this a lot because it, it yeah, it, it, it's seeing a world in a way that is truly profound, mm. and you're adding a layer to that. Which, until I heard about the project you were you were focusing mm. on, is not even a way that I considered. But does it in such a neat but extensive way that <laughs> I'm very excited to see it unfold. So I hope that. Brands keep coming on board. I hope that the big TV production houses that you're talking to give you a clear brief because, yeah, trying to get a GoPro out when you're on the uh, Kumbu Icefall, I can imagine it'll be a bit of a pain in the arse. Yeah, yeah, probably <laughs> be the last thing I want to do. So thanks very much. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. No, uh, no, I very much look forward to seeing things unfold. And the Wild Edge is website as well for, um, the, there's lots of context on things you've done in the past and stuff there as well. So that'll be linked down below. Yeah. But I wish you all the best. Safe travels. Thank you. How many hours out from your flight are we? About, what, about 36? 36. Fantastic. Yeah, well, yeah. I feel privileged to... Do you have any other podcast recordings before you go? No, I don't. This is the last one, so... Uh, excellent, <laughs> excellent. I'll lean into that very aggressively. Uh, thank you very much. We've had a few technical difficulties that we've navigated, but you are a man who has navigated much more significant difficulties in the past, so uh, we've made it work. We've made yeah. it work. But have a good awesome. evening. Thank you again, and best of luck with everything to come. Thanks so much, Fergus. Lovely conversation.